Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast. I often go to a restaurant downtown where on Wednesday nights they've got a popular special. It starts at 8 p.m., and it's this You pay $12 and get bottomless, boneless chicken wings served on wax paper in a red plastic basket, five wings at a time. Sauce of your choice. Eat those five, ask for more, bartender will dip back into the kitchen for a couple seconds, zip right back out with a fresh five. I happen to be at this bar most Wednesdays, though I've never taken advantage of the special. But when I'm here, and while the special is going on, there's a man who comes in who's very tall and very heavy, with a shaved head and plush red running shoes, always in a pair of shorts and a shirt, and he orders the wings every time, plus a Diet Coke. And he tends to have been there before I arrived, and sometimes he's still there when I leave. Basket after basket after basket. He's a big guy, a big presence, but he sits by himself and talks to nobody except the bartenders, all of whom he knows by name. On his neck, trailing down to his shoulder, is a tattoo of a dragon. One night, he asked the bartender to switch the TV from a reel of golf highlights to a Celtics game. The bartender complies, and the big man with his many baskets of boneless wings watches the game with a mute little smile until, at one point, there's a trailer for the new Spider-Man movie and he tosses his chicken wing down into the basket, and he claps his hands twice, loud, and he points at the screen, and he whoops real loud, and then he looks around, hungry for eye contact, commiseration, maybe conversation, but he doesn't find it. Sometimes, the servers don't pick up the baskets right away. They bring him fresh ones. I wonder if this is a tactic to guilt the customers out of ordering more wings, just to let their baskets accumulate in front of them as a constant reminder of how much they've already eaten. The most empty baskets I've ever seen him sitting with is three. He looks uncomfortable about it. He drinks soda after soda while eating his wings, and sometimes he gets a Guinness for dessert. He's a lonely-looking man in general, but when he's here and he's eating his wings with his Diet Coke and a little lager, he sports on his face a bliss that looks hard-earned and all-consuming. He's a guy who's picked his poison, and it looks like he's really enjoying it. It looks like the real thing. Odds are, if you're listening to this, it's because you know me personally, which most likely means that you live down here with me, in Miami. Which also probably means that I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to anyways, how a Cuban sandwich prepared on hot, fresh Cuban bread comprises ham, Swiss cheese, pickles and puerco, and a little bit of pepper, maybe a little mustard and mojo too if you can take it. I also probably don't need to tell you that on 8th Street in Little Havana, where I've now lived for a little over a year, has at least one diner or cafeteria on every block where you can grab a Cuban sandwich, good, bad, hot or cold, for 7 or 8 or $9 a piece, depending. It's a temptation that, after a year, I still can't resist as well as I should, especially on days like today, when, with an addict's mentality, I assure myself that even though money is awfully tight, and even though I'm gaining weight like it's a virtue, tomorrow will be the day that I start cutting back, both on beer and food, and that my budget, like my waistline, will adjust themselves accordingly. I'm saying it to myself right now from El Pub, on the corner of 8th Street and 15th, where I've brought my phone to record that background noise you're hearing, where I told myself that the Cuban sandwich isn't a flagrantly gluttonous indulgence, but rather an investment in the podcast. I'll make a segment out of this sandwich, something ethnic, 
The sandwich isn't for my palate or my stomach. It's for the segment. It's for the culture. It's for you. Join me next week for my segment on orgies and black tar heroin. Sincerely, your big fat drunk piece of shit host. My name is Alex. Goodbye. I think it's maybe that the dating pool is getting smaller as I'm getting older, but one of the obstacles to online dating that I've only lately been having trouble with is seeing my friends and colleagues and acquaintances on these apps, namely Hinge, because unlike Tinder, where other people will only know that you're interested in them if they, on their own, express an interest in you, these other more popular, more refined apps like OkCupid and Hinge, they require you to make the move, like just out of the blue, to tell somebody that you like them or send them a message complimenting their dog, but where you know, the implication of the messages that you'd like to go out with them. And it takes a degree of courage and confidence to just approach somebody out of the blue like that. And it, it is undoubtedly the adult way of doing things. And so another thing I've recently come to terms with is the fact that the adult way of doing just about anything will always be unpleasant and emotionally molesting because the essence of adulthood is accountability, which is always awkward, especially when you're putting your feelings out there and trying to connect with somebody who might not have any interest in connecting with you. Before I get into the story of how I embarrassed myself by messaging an acquaintance on OkCupid, let's look at this from the other side. I have now, on Hinge, received three messages from women that I know, friends, people whose company I enjoy, and I get it, they're not professing any kind of love or anything by reaching out on a dating app. We're friendly, and I guess they've seen me in a different light. I, d I don't really know how to conceptualize it, but clearly these friends of mine are interested in maybe getting up to something physical or romantic, I don't know. But even though I know that they're being just perfectly friendly and they're not writing some, you know, textual equivalent of, you know, grabbing me on the penis and forcing a ring on my finger, despite all that, it, ta it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable when they reach out and they express this kind of interest because usually I don't really want to take our friendship in that direction, but nor do I want to have to explicitly tell them that and make them maybe feel bad. While I may be uncomfortable about my friends reaching out through dating apps to kind of hint at the fact that they're interested in dating or hooking up, I also see that, you know, there's no way for them to know whether their feelings are reciprocated than, than to send me a message and risk the discomfort. So I don't resent it at all. If anything, it's admirable that they're taking the risk. It's just part of being an adult, I guess. You're not only contending with your own accountability for your actions, but you're having to respect other people who want to take accountability for their actions and their feelings. So. With all that cleared up, here is the first part of my embarrassing story. Three or four times a week, I go to this particular bar on Brickle, where they've got a really friendly and professional staff of older bartenders, and where, during a very generous happy hour, I go and I get two IPAs at $4 a pop, and I drink them over the course of about 90 minutes or so while reading and writing, and sometimes if I'm there with Bob and Linda, who live directly across the street, I'll have a third beer, and I won't be able to focus after that, but I'll be melted and content and everything will be peachy. There's a server at this establishment who's very pretty and very friendly, and we've traded friendly words, but we don't really interact much because she's always working in the dining room and I'm always at the bar. But we smile and we wave. A couple days ago, I got an email from OkCupid with a list of people that they say I should consider messaging because we appear to have a lot in common, based on the dozens or hundreds of questions that we've answered. And, as you can probably guess where this is going, the person at the top of that list was the aforementioned server at my local watering hole. Let's call her Mandy. Apparently she's 25 years old, so three years younger, and the site says that we are 85% compatible and that we enjoy the same things. And I don't really know how reliable these OkCupid algorithms are, but one of my major weaknesses in life is math, 
any sort of math. I am totally inept at it. I literally almost did not graduate college because I failed liberal arts math three times in a row. And as a result of this, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of disarmed and dazzled by numbers. It's, it's borderline mysticism. A mathematician to me exists in the same category as a voodoo priest. So if OkCupid shows me a big number and says that this is a sign that a very pretty woman and I are compatible, I believe it immediately. I always trust numbers and the ex explanations that other people give me because like the number just frightens me and I, w I want an answer about what it means. And while I did then spend a solid 24 hours debating whether to send Mandy a message or not, on account of it might make things uncomfortable for both of us at the bar if it turns out that she's not interested, I then thought about the argument that I've always made in defense of the friends and, and acquaintances who reach out to me on those apps, uh, testing the waters, which is that how else are you supposed to know? And I'm thinking this about Mandy now. Maybe we really are compatible. Maybe someday we'll have a kid who's like, hey, dad, how did you and mom get together? And I'll be like, you know, Japanga, I saw a number on a website and I didn't know what the fuck it meant, but I took the leap. And let me remind you of the number, listener, friend. OkCupid is telling me that, that Mandy and I answered some couple hundred questions in such a way that we are proven to just be phenomenally compatible with, with, like, the, with like a cozy margin of 15% difference, which is, is perfect. It's just enough difference that we can like really disappoint each other now and then and so now I'm just I'm getting more excited by the minute I'm thinking yes this could actually work I need to do it I need to do it now and so I say to myself fuck it I'm taking the leap I'm gonna reach out and be friendly and unassuming and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna communicate what every OkCupid message implicitly communicates i.e. I would like to begin preliminary hearings for coitus. But so there's there's a line in Mandy's profile where she's talking about how she's planning to go to college soon and that she's still trying to figure out what she wants to study. So I sent her a message saying, saying hey, and also not referencing that I recognize her from the restaurant. I say, hey, are you leaning toward any couple particular subjects that you might want to study? It's quick, it's friendly, it's innocuous, it's fine. It's fine. I push send before I can overthink things. It's fine. I wrote it. I sent it. It's fine. I then spend the next few hours exploring all the ways in which the message that I just sent was not fine. I open up the app. I look at the message. I cringe. I close the app. I open up the app again, and I read her profile in search of, like, what might have been a better detail to latch onto and start a conversation with. This, this happens in cycles, and it goes on for almost the entire day. Eventually, I manage to wean myself off of the phone. Three or four hours go by. I let myself open the app again. I go to the messages, and... It's not there, the message that I sent her. It's just gone from my outbox. I go to the list of high-ranking matches on the website, and her profile isn't there. I go to the email where I saw the link to her profile, and the link is still there, but it's broken. She blocked me. I said hi, and she blocked me because obviously she would not want to risk getting involved with somebody who's showing up at her job all the time. It is suddenly so clear to me what a fucking idiotic thing it was to, to have pursued this in the first place. And now the, the whole balloon of like of, of well-reasoned confidence and magnanimity that, that drove me to send the message in the first place, it's just, it's deflating in like a long sputtering fart across the room. And I honestly cannot even remember how the fuck I convinced myself that this was a good idea and just... Fuck. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Maybe. Endgame. And now, it's the late afternoon, verging on evening. Happy hour comes around, and it's one of those nights where I would normally go to the restaurant where Mandy works and do a little reading. But now I'm on the fence about it. Like, maybe I should go someplace else for a while, let this whole thing breathe for a bit. And so, that's what I do. 
I go to some other bar between my apartment and the normal spot because this bar, located inside an Argentine restaurant, has a placard out front boasting $4 beer at happy hour. All beer is $4. Come have a $4 beer. So I go and I sit and I pull out the script for the, the previous podcast about Sid Haig and um, I start editing that monologue. Um, and when eventually a bartender comes around, I ask for a beer and they bring it to me in a smaller glass than usual. A happy hour glass. 12 ounces. Which isn't a criminal offense, but it's close. And, and now I'm getting grumpy because the bar has like this weird posh atmosphere that I'm not accustomed to. And after a quick sip of this undersized beer, I realize that it isn't the Lagunitas IPA that I ordered, but a, it's a fucking Blue Moon, which is an awful beer that tastes like if, if an orange could menstruate. And so I tell the bartender it's the wrong beer, that, you know, the, the levers are right next to each other on the tap. And so he swaps it without a word, and then he hurries away to keep rolling cutlery. And the Lagunitas that he's left me with has like seven inches of foam, and I'm thinking, first of all, the other bar, my usual bar, the bar from which I've temporarily excommunicated myself because I'm a fucking idiot, that bar has the beer that I prefer, which is Vezasur. And, and they serve it in a proper 16-ounce pint glass, not this deceptively voluptuous 12-ounce soda cup, and second of all, the bartenders are cordial and they're familiar and, and, and they're not so curt as, you know, this dude here, and now I'm, I'm agitated and I'm like, I'm kind of wallowing and I drink the 12-ounce beer once the fucking Alaskan mountaintop of foam has dissolved, and I edit the monologue and somehow, slowly, by merit of enjoying the thing that I've written and taking in an IPA on an empty stomach, I start to feel a little better about the whole thing, just a little bit looser, almost prepared to forgive myself. The bartender comes around when I'm done with the beer and, again, doesn't say anything, just points at my glass, and um, I give him a smile and tell him no, that I'll just take the check. He brings it, I sign it, I pack up my shit and walk two blocks over to my normal bar. Fuck it. And I hop up on a stool and I order a Vezasur, and good old Jen brings it over in a frosted pint glass and she throws me a smile and puts her hands on her hips and she asks in her Canadian accent how I'm doing and how the writing's going. And I tell her, fine, fine, everything's fine. Because suddenly it is. Suddenly things are fine. And I finish editing the monologue and I open up my Kindle and I do a little reading. And when I see Mandy out of the corner of my eye and as the beer flows, I decide that it's fine. I decide that everything is fine, that it doesn't need to be uncomfortable at all. And when Mandy flashes me an awkward amalgam of like a peace sign and a wave, I wave back to her and I smile and I take a long pull off of the pint and I return to my book and decide again that everything is fine. Make the decision to not beat myself up about this. Nobody got hurt. Nobody got offended. I took a simple social risk. It didn't go the way that I'd hoped and now there's a little bit of awkwardness. But this is just the stickiness of life. People misread each other, people try to merge into lanes where they have no business driving, it happens. But there's a benefit to having little fiascos like this one. By making myself super transparent, putting myself out there as a person who does stupid shit and who tries to get things and fails, fails more often than he succeeds, it clears the air of any kind of pretense or posturing. By being open with people and taking advantage of certain opportunities when they present themselves, I am, at the very least, sparing my future self the corrosive what-ifs that, you know, that currently bother me about, you know, chances I didn't take when I was in college or high school. But I do also think that my experience of life will be way more authentic and rich if I'm just honest with myself and with the people around me about the things I really want and think and feel. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I'll know that I tried.
I'm a big fan of David Remnick, editor-in-chief at The New Yorker, as well as the host of their weekly flagship podcast, The New Yorker Radio Hour. He's conversant on books and movies and music, history, news of the day. As his colleague Adam Gopnik puts it, Remnick's eyes pass over every word printed in every weekly issue of The New Yorker. He's a guy who reads hundreds of pages a week, gives lectures, is both a subject and conductor of interviews, he hosts a weekly podcast, and balances a magazine's budget, and manages, it seems, to always be friendly and interesting, and, more importantly, interested. He's a curious dude whose enthusiasm for just about anything is absolutely contagious. And so, in celebration of David Remnick, I'm starting a new segment on the Thousand Movie Project podcast. It's called... David Remnick is fucking terrific. In his responsibilities as editor-in-chief at one of the most culturally significant weeklies in America, as well as the host of its flagship weekly podcast, Remnick is forced to cover a host of topics that, if followed closely and taken all together, might afford a reader or a listener a similarly rounded glimpse of things. So in this new segment, David Remnick is fucking terrific, I'll be checking in on what Remnick is up to. Maybe he's jotted a quick note in this week's New Yorker, maybe it's the summary he's providing on their thematic Sunday reading list, or maybe I just listened to this week's episode of the podcast and I'm going to see what's what. This week, for our first installment, I'll be calling on a recent episode of the New Yorker Radio Hour. A few weeks ago, David Remnick interviewed one of the many living and inanimate contenders for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, Peter, Gu Peter Buttigieg. Buttigieg is a military veteran. He's currently wrapping up his last year as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And when Remnick interviewed him, he asked Buttigieg, who at the age of 37 is considered by many to be way too young for the nomination, if he thinks that Joe Biden, his 76-year-old competitor, or Bernie Sanders, a year older than that, are too old to be president of the United States. Buttigieg said it really isn't his place to be making such statements about his competitors, whereupon Remnick, settling a hand on the butt of his pistol, cocked a brow and asked Buttigieg if he wasn't maybe dodging the question. Buttigieg, after an uneasy moment, relented. He told Remnick, on the record, that yes, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are too fucking old. And so the interview concluded with judges agreeing by unanimous decision that Remnick had emerged the winner. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.